Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, Chip Frederick. We will talk Vanderbilt baseball in light of the season coming to an end this week. We will talk about a couple of major names in Christian Little and Carter Young hitting the transfer portal. We'll talk about a lot of things, and I will get this out of the way first. There was a lot more to talk about today, even though we went about an hour and a half than we could get to. So we will probably have a future podcast on the roster and probably an additional one on the draft. And additionally, there were some questions in the mailbag we didn't get to just for the sake of time today. I will probably set those aside and try to get to some of those in the future. But anyway, great podcast with Chip. We did this Friday afternoon, and I hope you enjoy it, even if we didn't get to everything that you would have liked to seen us get to today. Chip Frederick joins me. It's a Friday. Vanderbilt's baseball season ended on Monday. We've got that to talk about. We have got the transfer portal to discuss. Two key Commodores are in the portal, Christian Little, the pitcher, and Carter Young, who was Vanderbilt's shortstop for most of the last three years. Chip, a lot going on, a season ending that didn't satisfy a lot of people. We've got a lot of ground to cover today and about an hour to do it, which I know will not be enough, but we're going to bite off as much as we can. Anyway, with all that said, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Chris, uh, good to be back on with you and, uh, you know, kind of wish, uh, was hoping that we'd be talking about the Auburn regional, super regional, but we're not. And that's the reality that uh, Vanderbilt fans are facing and not used to that when you've been, you know, for the last eight years, uh, trips to Omaha and it's become a regular um, kind of quest and plan your summer around being out there, but that's not going to happen this year. We knew that it could be a possibility. This season was one that uh, just had it such the up and downs and the, in the incredible inconsistency, I would say, if you just put a phrase to it, we, we were, we had podcasts where we talked about this team when they were on a hot winning streak and winning, what was it? 17, 18 games in a row we had a pause after the South Carolina series where we talked about, you know, well, were those teams as really good as we thought they were that we beat in that stretch? And, you know, you had Carter Holt and losing for the first time after being looking like an all world player. Of course, he ended up an all American freshman, all American. So let's don't lose sight of that. He had an incredible year. And then you just bounce around and you have up and down series and you have uh, it just was back and forth. And it was I know it was trying on the emotions of Vanderbilt fans. You, you knew it had to be for Tim Corbin and his staff and the players. And as they head into the regional out in at Oregon State, you just you, you thought they could maybe get it together. They lose the first game and they bounce. You know, your emotions go down and then they win a couple games in a row and hitting the ball and scoring multiple runs and double digit runs. And you're thinking to yourself, maybe they just got it in them that this team has enough gumption and experience to get to a super. And then they just lose in the final game and a limit of the final of the game on Monday night and um, just kind of fell apart on them. It was a, it was a good baseball game, but not one where Vanderbilt capitalized. So now we're into this second season where we're not used to as far as portal and transfers and, 
I'm sure the increased exposure and talk about NIL and what that's going to mean and is Vanderbilt going to jump in the portal and get some kids and who's going to be in the portal, uh, where these kids are going to go, and then the draft. <laughs> then, you, then, oh, yeah, we've got the draft and uh, who, how that's going to impact the freshman class. I'm not really worried about the Vanderbilt. Of course, there's not a whole lot to worry about with Carter Young's departure, and you've got some kids who will probably get drafted, but uh, as far as how it really is going to affect Vanderbilt, it's going to be the amateur draft for seniors in high school, and that's what it's going to come down to. So we'll probably have to have another show when it's, after that's all said and done because you really, I mean, talking about starting lineups next year, talking about who's going to get innings, talking about who's going to be in the rotation, you and I could sit here and talk about that for three hours. But we we got to know who's going to be on the roster. And so to sit here and second, you know, play the game as far as well we think this person we don't know and and they're having exit meetings they've already had exit meetings i'm sure uh and that's where it's leaking of this portal information once that gets out you really really don't know until the uh draft comes around and and that's the second stage of that so up and down season you know you win 30 plus games goodness chris a lot of programs would want that you go to a regional what 17 years in a row under Tim Corbin, a lot of a lot of programs like to, to hang their hat on that. But the expectation and the bar has been set so high for this program that, uh, needless to say, it's a disappointment. And I think that's the attitude that they have uh, over there on Jess Neely. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. I think we could probably do a whole podcast of an hour or more just on the roster for next year. So I think tentatively I'm going to table that. You've got an hour today, and I know the two of us, if we get into anything else, we will not be able to do both. So I'm going to hit on a few other topics. Let's hit on the hottest one, I guess, leaving the regional. That was the, the pitching setup. Now, the funny thing is, they got four starts of at least six innings, which is crazy in this day and age. I don't know that anybody else had more than two guys go six innings in a regional. I'd have to check that, but certainly I wouldn't think anybody went more than that. So on one hand, their pitching sort of held up at the end, and who knows, if um, if the ball Jack Bolger hits goes six inches higher, that thing goes to the wall. They beat San Diego in game one. Maybe this is different. Uh, you know, of course, Oregon State would have done things differently, too. You just never know. Uh, maybe instead of them being the team that played an extra game by Monday, it, it's Oregon State, and and the season's different. And I, I would say that just one or two more runs and they make it out of the weekend. Everybody looks at the weekend differently and this year differently, but they didn't. That's the way it goes. And, of course, what that brought into focus was the decision to pitch Thomas Schultz with an 8-1 lead in that game three situation on Sunday night against Oregon State, when you're sitting there going, boy, you don't know what you can count on for the next day. Schultz was about as dependable as they had all year. Yeah, I know that towards the end of the year there was some cracks. There was that awful LSU outing. He wasn't grading against Kentucky, although I think the gloves didn't help him there. And I think that's the one thing that everybody dwelled on come Monday, and you could see people talking about it on Sunday night, too, going, oh boy, that may cost them the game on Monday. I don't know if it's fair to say that it did, but that was certainly the big question everybody had coming out of the weekend was, was it the right call to pitch Schultz 
in that Sunday night game and should they have left him to Monday when they couldn't find guys to throw enough strikes. And, and unfortunately, that's the kind of discussion you have when the season ends the way that it did. Yeah, and that's what happens when you get in the loser's bracket. You, pitching becomes a premium. And you look at Schultz's numbers. I mean, 2.88 ERA through 34 innings, led the team in saves with eight. So theoretically, and granted, you got to go with the way a pitcher or a player has been going the last several outings, and it, and it hadn't been as pristine as it was a month ago for Schultz. But you're throwing your closer, like you said, in a, in a game like that. And there's two schools of thoughts on that. You know, Tim Corbin, Chris, if, for day one since we've known him, and this is just his philosophy and the way he coaches, has always been the guy who's been uh, managed like there is no tomorrow if you don't win yeah. today. And there's a school of thought of some people might just say, well, when you get in the loser's bracket, you have to play it to win the tournament um, in, in this day and age with, with all the offense and, and, and you've, you've, you've got to conserve pitching. I mean, some people had argued, I'm sure, that why not, you know, why not throw a Cunningham there or why not, you know, throw – uh, Ginther in there, you know, he threw on Monday. What, you know, where were those guys? If you can't, and, and the school of thought is, if you can't hold an eight-one lead, you're not going to win the tournament anyway. And that's something that some coaches' schools of thought. But I mean, I will say he has not deviated from that, and that's just something that's in his blood and the way he coaches. And needless to say, he's been extremely successful. But I think there was some pushback on that. You sure would have liked to have had your technical closer there to get you six, seven, eight, nine outs on Monday night if needed. And, and, the, and that didn't happen, but you know, there's, um, you, you can second guess all you want. I mean, you can sit there and say, what about the, you know, I, Vanderbilt really didn't have a number one guy when they rolled in there the last couple weekends. So, uh, pitching Holton where they did or Futrell where they did. I mean, th- those were kind of interchangeable. I didn't have a problem with that at all. Um, you know, you got two freshman All-Americans in Futrell and Holton, which bode, bode well for the future, I know, for for Brownie and, and Tim uh, going in next year. But it, it was um, – you know, there's little things you can pick on. The the, the saving grace is if, if, if you don't want to be in that position, don't get in the loser's bracket. Don't win the first game. And Oregon State had that luxury. You know, Vanderbilt had – we had them on their heels. I mean, we, we stuck it to them on their home field – and they came back with some punch, and I respect that. And they, you know, went all out and throwing guys and, you know, give me three outs, give me two outs, give me another inning, and they're piecing it together and got it done. And, and that's what happens when, when a team is desperate and they're on their home field, they're trying to get to a super, then, and that's what happened. And they had some frustration from the year before losing the way they did, and, and, the, and they came out on top. Well, to be fair – on a couple things, as you mentioned, that is the way that he has done it ever since he's been here. And B, Oregon State did it the same way, too. I thought, boy, when they threw Con- or Cooper Herp- Jerpy or whatever his name was, um, I'm horrible with the pronunciation there, against New Mexico State, I thought, oh, boy, that, that might open the door for Vanderbilt to backdoor its way into a super. Um, you know, and again, the difference was just maybe that one extra game. So I, I think that's fair to say that he's not the only guy that does it, and he's always done it this way, and, and their track record over the last 10 years, I mean, they've, they've been the best program in college baseball. So, you know, it, it's worked for him. You, you can question whether it's always been the right move, but it, it's mostly worked for them. 
Number two, I go back to something. I talked to him about an hour and a half, just a few days before the season started. And with pitching, he used the word uncertainty with me. And I thought it was interesting then, and I think it's it's interesting and sort of haunting now, because again, he he didn't say I'm concerned. He didn't say we stink. He said it's uncertain. And I think that ended up being prophetic for the whole season because you just never were quite sure what they had. And, and right when you're ready to throw in the towel on all of them other than Carter Holton, they show up in a regional and, and darn near win it in part because of the pitching depth and, until, again, it, it fell apart in Game 5. But I just thought, boy, that was kind of the word that described it most of the year. And I, I just think it ended up being very accurate. Yeah, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, you had a, a guy who was a closer last year and a closer, more of a closer role, sixth inning, seventh inning guy in Maldonado, and he gets hurt um, after trying to be a starter. The Christian Little situation, how he was going to, is, was he going to be able to embrace the starting rotation role, which he wasn't, um, and he didn't, um, and, and didn't catch fire to that potential that was laid out in front of him. Uh, this team had a couple freshmen who came in, Futrell blowing it up like he does in the middle of the week, and then the question of do we let this guy go to the weekend, and they eventually did. You know, your your workhorse, workhorse McIlvain was there, and he was consistent for the most part. Um, you know, he he lost more games than anybody on the staff with five, but I, I would say, you know, he had a no-hitter, um, with, a dual no-hitter with Little in Kentucky. Uh, Holton, I think was a surprise, but when you really look at it, Chris, he was throwing a lot in the fall, wasn't he? I mean, he was, there, there was talk about Holton even in the fall of how impressive he was. So they, they weren't trying to trick anybody trying to get, uh, like it was a big surprise that he was in the rotation. So, yeah, I mean, I think there was, the numbers were there from top to bottom. I think they had, you know, more innings if you look at the stats than any other year that I remember of having guys, you know, you get your 80 innings by Holton and your 86 and a third by McIlvain, but I've never really looked down a stat sheet at Vanderbilt before in the past at the end of the season and seen, you know, a Patrick Riley getting 52 and a third and Maldonado 38 and two thirds and Little 38 and two thirds and Schultz 34 innings. There's more innings that were spread out amongst more people than any year that I, I can recall. And so they threw arms out there and got different looks. But, you know, let's, let's be honest. And, and it, I know people probably put this on your board. I'm not telling you something that's like, ooh, I'm going to shock everybody. But when you've had the names of Rocker and Lighter out there for the last couple years, it can definitely – it well, takes away innings from others. We know that because they went deep into games. So you got less experience from from the bullpen because those guys were so good. And it just sort of makes you rely on those guys. It was so much like, okay, how many innings can Rocker and Lighter get us today? Can they get us to the seventh? And then we'll just piece it together and get Maldonado and roll him out there and get the save. It, that that can, you know, not say backfire on you. You just get used to it. And it was just different. And it'll be different next year uh, if, if they get some of these kids on campus who are supposed to be impressive like they are. They'll figure it out. Uh, you know, you look at the stat line, uh, uh, the the team stats for the SEC. I'll, there's a lot of ranked second in the SEC for this pitching staff. That's not too shabby. 
I mean, it's, no, in a, in, in especially a for a, so many so many innings that left. Right. I mean, you know, it, numbers don't lie, and and so I think pitching wasn't the problem. I think they had enough pitching. In moments, it could have been better. Yes, uh, could some guys have risen to the occasion more more so than they did? Of course, they should could have. But this team's downfall, I think, was getting the key hit and the key situation and getting batting order six and having those guys pick up. You know, if you're looking for a bottom line, and a, I'm a bottom line guy when, when I'm talking about the Oregon State last game, you're not going to win many games when you're one for 11 with runners in scoring position. You're not going to beat Lipscomb, Belmont. I mean, you're just not. And, and um, unless they throw it around the yard a bunch. And uh, that's uh, one for 11 is not going to get it done in the super regional final. And that's what happened. And, you know, the guys who shined and did great. I mean, Spencer Jones looked like a world beater in, the, in that region. I mean, he looked like a pro's pro. And, and he's going to get a, a, a drafted very well, I think. But, you know, he had, some, he had some opportunities late in the game, and so did Enrique, and they just didn't get it done. And that's what happens in baseball. It doesn't mean they're poor players or choked or anything. We just had some runners in school uh, on Monday night, and we were one for 11, and we didn't win the game because of that. And that's the bottom line. Yeah, I would. They didn't hit in scoring position in, in the first game or the last game. I bet in between they must have hit 400 with men oh, in yeah, scoring yeah. position. Exactly. It's, it's, that's just how it goes. Yeah, speaking of Keegan and Jones, Jones is a major leaguer and maybe a really, really good one. Um, and, and I think Keegan, depending on the defense, because the catching's got a long way to go and the DH pool is competitive, it wouldn't shock me to see Keegan make it too uh, and, and maybe stick a while. I just thought those guys, this season of the Vandy Sports Podcast has been made possible by my friend, Dr. Jody Jones, DDS. When it comes to general or cosmetic dentistry services, Jody is the best in Nashville. Just check out his client list. It testifies to that. He sees movie stars, music stars, athletes, coaches, you name it. Jody is the dentist of choice for stars in Nashville, but he sees regular folks like you and I as well. What people love about Jody's office is the ambiance. It's relaxing. It's friendly. Someone described it to me as a tooth spa. Whether your needs are general or cosmetic, go see Jody today. Call him 615-270-2322. See him at 55 Music Square East, not far from downtown or the Vanderbilt campus. Jody is a former Vanderbilt football player and a huge Commodore booster, so go and talk Vandy sports with him while you're there. Go see Jody Jones today. Thank him for his support of this podcast because without it, this season would not be possible. I think what they did at the plate got lost in the disappointment of a failure to meet top five expectations. And I thought both those kids had really loud seasons. I don't know that week in, week out, they got the recognition that I thought they were due. No, I mean, SEC stats only. I mean, Jones hit 354, Enrique 328, Keegan 325. Those are some good numbers. That's SEC only now. Um, You know, and they finish – Spencer Jones finishes at 370, Keegan 371. Keegan beats him by one percentage point in hitting. I mean, that's that's a really good year. And, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, Spencer Jones just looked the part out there. Um, 
got to polish up a little bit on his fielding out there, um, and he will. Uh, they'll get him. You wonder if he's a first baseman or not. I don't know. It's sick at his size. Um, but, boy, he's got he's got bat speed, and um, he's got the intangibles. He's a good kid. Um, he He's smart. He speaks well. He's He's got all the intangibles, I think, to be a big leaguer, um, and it's just a matter of time. So uh, I can't wait to watch, watch him uh, develop. But, yeah, you know, and Bradfield's all of a sudden, I don't know what he hit last year. He hits 317. He steals 46 bases and doesn't ever get caught. I think he was he was thirty maybe thirty more points better last year, wasn't he? I'm, I'm not he sure. He was a better I'm offensive sure. player last year. Yeah. His on base percentage was was I think closer to four fifty, and and even then that took a dive in in Omaha when he was injured or, or yeah. whatever the the issue was there. Yeah, so you know, um, I think looking at things too, boy, uh, you know uh, how much. We missed the catching presence behind the plate. I'm, I, and I'm not. I'm. I'm saying Jack Bolger. You know, he took it over uh, last year, uh, this year, midway through, and kind of became the consistent guy. And you know, got to know he was in. He was worn out by Monday night. I mean, he caught every game. But boy, the stability we had behind the dish last year cannot be. Um, you know that that cannot be overemphasized. How much we missed what we had last year. Um, with CJ, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, he was and that's, that's why he got drafted. Um, but you know, uh, you know, we talked all year, catcher first, third, it's kind of that triangle, that triangle catcher first, third, where, where there were just, you know, not periods, but just a continual question mark of who was going to do that, who was going to take it over. And at the end of the year, it kind of became short with the shortstop with Carter young, but, uh, that's something they're going to have to figure out next year, either through the portal or and, and what they do with that or with some guys rising up. Um, but I, I, I said, you know, looking at roster management, which I'm so glad I don't have to fool with, especially a school like Vanderbilt where you got tuition and how much kids can afford. And, you know, they're, they've got some advantages now. We know that with the opportunity Vanderbilt. Let's don't deny that it doesn't exist, but – handling of the money and knowing who's going to come and who's going to come back and, and all those things are, it's a nightmare, but they've got some work to do as far as figuring it out. And I, I do think Chris, we could see, let's see there's 45 on the roster, I think. And we don't, there's different rules. You might know this about how many to get that back to next year because of the COVID year. But, um, I could see a 20% roster turnover, um, 20 to 30% even in some cases, I think we've seen some people hit the portal, um, some is surprising, some not, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some more attrition here in the next week or so. Yeah, m- more of allegedly hit the portal ever since we started doing this podcast. I think I'll hold off on getting to those until that's a little more solid. But, and, and by the way, that's, again, that plays into the roster podcast we need to do Then I, I think we'll do next week. But one footnote there, I did think Jack Bolger did a pretty good job of catching. Um, I, I know the the receiving wasn't always the greatest, but I thought the throwing was pretty good for a kid who didn't really catch much last year, who ended up getting most of the catching duties. I think they're in pretty good shape there. You figure another year of development, uh, they'll they'll be in in really a really really good spot with Bolger behind the plate next year. Yeah, I, I think he. Um... He receives the ball well. He does it a little differently. Kind of gets on the one knee and 
he's he's a catcher's catcher you know i mean he, he's he looks like a catcher you know i mean he, he i would love to throw to a guy like that i mean he's just like a teddy bear back there he's big body and and he did get better throwing and, and receiving. So yeah, I'm I'm not, in no way. I mean, we just had a guy who got drafted by the A's back there last year. Who third round too, was, I believe. Yeah, third round. Yeah, I mean, you know, so anytime you lose a kid like that, and you, um, and and who kind of control things for his freshman year like he did, it's going to hurt. And he gets drafted before his junior year because of his age, and and and. You hate losing kids like that too. So I, yeah, I, I thought he did a very good job. He won the job outright throughout the year, and I think it was important that they had that consistency every game. The same guy back there um, for the last couple weekends and and the NCAA tournament. I want to ask you your opinion of coaching. Let's start with Mike Baxter because I think that as the season ended and the results got worse, and and I think the howling hit a high. At least it did on my board when they lost that game one to San Diego, I mean, everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but there was a vocal presence that they wanted to fire Baxter. They wanted to fire Scott Brown. Um, You know, this guy needs to go in the portal. That guy needs to go in the portal, that kind of thing. I've probably been, I'm not going to say I'm in the minority here. I feel like Baxter's done a pretty good job on the whole since he's been here. I got challenged on that on the board. I bet I spent an hour putting together an answer that included some of the hitters he's developed. I think what he did with Keegan and Jones was great work. I think what he did with Steven Scott was great work. I think he has had a hand in developing Bradfield. Bradfield, from what I was told, you know, first fall here two years ago, didn't hit much. I don't know how much they expected – of him going into the season and all of a sudden here's a kid who's been a first team outfielder in the SEC for two years running based on you know his defense surely but his ability to get on base I mean I could go on and on they developed Connor Kaiser to some degree I thought that um, Ethan Paul was a pretty good hitter under his tutelage I mean th- there's more there I mean you you could pick flaws um you could maybe take issue with Julian Infante being one, Carter Young being another. I, I have felt, though, he's done a pretty solid job. Um, we'll get to pitching in a minute, but what's your opinion on the job Mike Baxter has done? Well, it, it, um, you're seeing – and he's an easy target. Um, it's always – with when you're in a situation with Corbin, who's a legend and, and has won your national titles, the easy low-hanging fruit is to go after the assistant coaches. You saw what happened – I think I told you this the other day – what happened in the Florida situation. They, they parted ways with the third-base coach who's been with O'Sullivan for 13 years, and he – they either had a mutual parting or a termination or whatever – I don't know his name. It, it it escapes him right now, but he's been there for 13 years. And those are tough decisions um, that staffs have to make. And w- when things aren't going well and you have a guy like a Nick Saban or a Tim Corbin who's had the success that they've had, you don't really go after those guys. You go after the low-hanging fruit and the assistants who, who kind of the position players and what have you. And then you start talking about, you know, what – you know how much do they miss Macias, and and was he a buffer between uh, Tim and the players, which I've I've heard people talk about, and I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, you got a Vandy boy in Macias and a Vandy boy in Baxter, um, and it's difficult for me to talk about it because it's, uh, I guess I'm a Vandy boy, and uh, you know from 
from the past and talking about a player or former player that that is in that label is hard for me to do. I, I can be objective and and say, uh, you know, that the world's changing as far as a lot of these attitudes of hitting and the launch angles and and um, analytics and getting in cages and analyzing swings and all that. You, you, those can be it, it, it's it's like uh, Schloss Angle uh, at Texas A&M, which I saw the, at the SEC tournament. There was a video during one of the billion rain delays that they had, and they had an interview with him that was taped. And they said, you know, their approach in the cage pretty much in practice every day is to hit strikes and take balls. That's yeah, it. I saw that too. And I, that kind of stuck with me. Um, and, and I said, and, and I was like, you know, doing something in the house. And I kind of just stopped when I heard him say that. And so I went over closer to the television and listened and dug a little deeper. And his thing was, you know, in batting practice, or it's pretty boring. He said, if you come to our batting practice, it's the bo- most boring practice you'll ever see because we're hitting line drives right back at the pitcher, hitting the ball in the gaps. Um, and, you know, we kind of tend to get on guys who hit a bunch of home runs. He said home runs and what park you in, but they're boring as far as what we do. We want to hit line drives and, uh, you know, hit strikes, take balls. And sometimes it gets that simple when you can get so much in your head and you can get so much in the teaching, the fine things about, you know, I remember Yuskrimski was here over the winter and he was talking about being in the cage when he was training uh, at Vanderbilt and they had an interview with him and he was talking about, you know, I got to get my launch angle this and, and I got, I'm, I'm, I've been learning to do this better and I've been studying and stuff. And boy, that's just over my pay grade. And, and sometimes it gets, I, I wonder if sometimes the overemphasis on all this stuff is just too much for these kids when they're struggling. My thing that I have an issue with in watching this team, and I'm not pinning it on Mike Baxter. I think it could be something. I mean, maybe he's telling them, you, you know, it could be you know, more what Tim and them tell them as a staff, but just the inconsistencies of guys taking first pitch strikes and not being aggressive as you see other teams do. Um, and when you fall behind in the conference and in the, and when you're playing top flight teams and regionals and you're doing that, it puts you behind the eight ball. When you get in negative counts, when you get in positive counts, of course, it's natural. You're going to see the pitch you want to hit. And that was, I think a lot of people's beef is that they saw this team take a bunch of first pitch strikes and then take cock shots right down the, the chute on you know zero and two counts and one and two counts when they should be more aggressive and up there hacking and hitting the ball the other way, so I think that's and and again I'm not saying that's a Baxter philosophy at all because I don't know if it's a Mike Baxter philosophy or a Tim Corbin philosophy. Uh, maybe it could be asked, but um, I just that is what I observed. That's what other people I've talked to observed that they wish this team could have had an approach. The approach was a little different, and I don't know if that's a thing with these kids. Or you get it in their – it's so much interred in their brain that they can't get off of it unless they just – unless they achieve success doing it in summer ball or working on in the cage on their own. And, and you know, that's just my two cents about it. So uh, I'm, I'm sure there's discussions that have to be made all the time between Tim and his staff of what we can do better, and I'm sure there's, it's ongoing. But he's a loyal guy. He played, what, he played for Tim. Uh, I, I think they can probably rectify any issues and by looking at tape and looking at stats – not maybe too much. You don't want to, again, you get too much in these kids' heads, it becomes an issue, but maybe hopefully they can find some answers to that next year. 
Well, and I don't disagree with some of the criticisms. My thing has been you get judged on your good and your bad. I just think with Baxter, as I've observed it, has been a lot more good than bad in his time here. And, and admittedly, I'm I'm biased because since he's been here, I, I've known Mike. I, I dealt with Mike when he played. Um, I really liked him. Um, I feel the same way about uh, David Macias when he was here, too. Really, really liked David. Uh, in fact, I've heard some people speculate that David's departure really affected them in, in some ways. And I, I know this. I mean, everybody knows Tim Corbin has got a short fuse. I mean, you saw it at times when he wouldn't show up for the post game or you know, that, that Monday rant about his team when he was asked about not doing the post game. Tim's fire burns a little too bright at times, and you need guys around you who are buffers. Mike is that chill guy that I think can serve as that sum, and I think Macias had a lot of that in him too, and I just wonder if the overall chemistry of the coaching staff suffered where you didn't have another guy to, to balance out that white-hot fire when David Macias left. No, I think if 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 the idiotic um, the idiotic rules and laws of the NCAA as far as having a third assistant were not in existence, and this and this was which they better be doing something soon. I think they will. They have to. But um, if that weren't the case, David Macias would never have left. I think they would have found enough money in the piggy bank to pay him. I think he would have enjoyed it. Of course, he's coaching first base for the Padres now. So let's, I mean, that could have been something that moved him, but those guys, maybe I, I looked it up one day just to be curious. I think base coaches make 250, 300, um, uh, especially at the entry level, maybe even a little less, but it's a great opportunity for him. But Macias was a, is, is a player's coach. I saw him interact last year in Omaha. I was in the elevator with him after the game just so happened to be in the elevator with him with my kids and he was comforting some players, uh, hand on the shoulder. It's all it was just one or two words. I think he's just, he was, he's a cool cat. And I mean that with respect, um, just, you know, and he gave that buffer to, like you mentioned, to speak that language of being, you know, not like the dad figure that Tim is, but more like the uncle. And I'm not talking about the crazy uncle like Vitello, but, the, the cool uncle who, you know, he played the game, knows the game, played pro ball, played under Corbin, you know, and, and, and can relate. So uh, they do miss him. I, I, and I think he was a great presence at Vanderbilt. Um, sorry that he moved on and maybe who knows he can matriculate back, but he's in good opportunity right now. Okay. Scott Brown. It's really hard for me to know the fair judgment on them because as everybody knows, their pitching talent is, you know, top five, top ten in the country every year. And with that, you can sort of only live up to expectation, right? And a criticism of him for years has been their guys don't always throw strikes. They get these talented arms, and he gets kids in that they can never quite get throwing strikes. Tyler Beatty may be one of the higher-profile examples from the past. Patrick Riley is one that, that was very present this year with that. And I don't know if that's fair. Some kids don't throw strikes for anybody. Tyler Beatty's issues certainly have followed him to the professional level to the point where he got released by the Giants this year and is now with the Pirates. So you have that. 
but I still go back to where their talent is, you can kind of only disappoint. And and I think it made it worse this year where you look to Knoxville and they've got all these kids that, that did throw strikes this year, whether it was their bullpen guys who'd been there four or five years or their freshmen who came in and did it. Although that wane with those guys is season ended. You saw Beam and some of those kids, Burns, become less reliable with getting the ball where they wanted. Um, at the same time, the guys won two national titles. Um, you know, 14 certainly was on pitching more than it was on hitting. And, and 2019, that lineup was awesome. And you could argue the offense carried them a little bit more, but they still had Kumar Rocker, who they developed into a guy that had some issues at the end of his high school career to a guy that was untouchable in the postseason. And, and as much as he sort of plateaued from there, I guess, it was still a pretty good plateau. He was still an All-American level. You know, Jack Leiter came in and was was lights out from day one till the day he left. I get the criticisms, but and, – and this is not like – this podcast is not meant as a defense of the coaching staff. I don't – you know, get special treatment from them to say nice things. I think people know if they've listened to me for a long time, I kind of criticize where I feel it's appropriate um, and, and let the chips fall where they can. But I, I do wonder there, you look at their staff this year, they had so few known quantities and the disasters at the end of the year were pretty loud. But like you said, you look at, look at where they ranked in pitching, um, I, I think that makes a statement, too. And, and and by the way, this was a hard year, Chip, to pitch. I, I think that they tried to live a lot at the top of the zone. I think it's really hard to do that right now with where they are with the, the bats and whatever's going on with that, legal, or just the bats being um, hot in a way that, that the specs have gotten to where between the bats and the balls, the ball leaves the yard without tampering. Um Whatever the case, it's a hard time to pitch. You saw the scores in the regionals. You saw Oklahoma State go down 13 and win a game by 14. It, it's a hard time to make sense of Scott Brown and how to judge him. Uh, but again, I, I will say the bar is is really high there, and I don't know that that's always fair. Yeah, I see the issues with strike throwing and lack of strike throwing. But but you go back, he's been here, what, a decade or more now. And, and on the whole... Um, over that time, their pitching has been as good as anybody's. Yeah, and and you see, you, you, I think the elevated fastball, you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, I, I think that there was a concentrated effort, at least it seems like there was, to get the ball down in the regional compared to what they were doing earlier, earlier on in the year. Um, you know, th- this team, they gave up, 50, let's see, I'm looking at the stats right now as far as home runs are concerned compared to last year. They gave up 76 home runs last year as a staff, and this year they gave up 59. Boy, it sure doesn't seem like it. Well, um, they were, for the first 20 or 30 games, they'd given up, what, maybe 10, and they came in bunches yeah. late. Yeah, and uh, I, I do agree with your – I mean, once again, you just you, – you said it. The elevated fastball now – and lighter could get away with that with the giddy up they had on the ball and then and i'm not saying that's just a philosophy that they have that we're going to work up in the zone it could be but i did think i was like boy it's amazing what happens when you get the ball down in the zone what they were doing on their little three-game winning streak they had in the regional 
after losing the first. Even even the first game, uh, I thought Holton did a good job keeping the ball down. But I, I will second the notion that you have as far as whether it be kids being stronger, bats are hotter, uh, parks are a little closer. Uh, you, you've got to be able to work down in the zone in this in this day and age in baseball. And as I mentioned, that launch angle deal that there, I'm not denying it doesn't exist. It exists definitely. Um, kids know about it. They go to these training places where their you know, swings are analyzed and critiqued. And and um, in in the case, you know, there's a lot of strikeouts, but there are also a lot of uh, in this day and age. There's a lot of of uh, balls jumping out of the park and I, and I, that's just this day and age of baseball i know it's changed from it changes it goes through phases you're seeing it in in, in um you know whether it be bats whether it be ball pro level where they're having a hard time pitchers are having a turn with the grip if the is the bat bats live uh, or the balls uh, hotter uh, wound tighter all those things it just it creates um some thoughts in your mind and makes you think you know, uh, but it, it's definitely a different game. It, it's a way different game than it was uh, when you got guys up there strike out a ton, but they'll get you the big hit and the big boomer, and and you're seeing that across the country, not just here. Okay, next thing, leadership. That's the one question I've had the last couple years: is who were your identifiable leaders? I'm, I'm guessing this year it was Keegan and McIlvain based on who they sent out to the press. Um, I, I just have not been convinced, and, and this is just a gut feeling, I could be wrong, that their leadership was as strong as it was in, in 19 and, and, and maybe 13 and some other years. Um, and, and again, Tim Corbin could be a tough guy to play for when it's not going well. It, at times, to me, it didn't look like at the end of the last two years they were having a lot of fun out there. You know, of course... I guess nobody's having fun when they're losing. I don't know where it's fair to settle in a critique here, but I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. We're spoiled. That's well. That's we that's We've a good spoiled. start. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, you know, you when you when the first thing that uh, the coach talks about when he comes back from because I was there from Omaha and the, the, the year of the you know the and the gathering, but the most recent one of winning and and that we had was you know. A, he didn't have to worry about anything and it includes Maggie on that. You know, he says Maggie and I didn't have to worry about a thing with his team. Didn't have to worry about grades. Didn't have to worry about, um, kids getting, you know, in trouble or getting, you know, arrested by the campus cops or staying out too late. It was almost like they police themselves. Um, I don't, I'm not privy to inf- any information about this team to, contradict that uh, I, I just don't know it appears i'll agree with you it just appeared that there were some issues uh maybe internally that we don't know about and maybe that'll come out and maybe it won't um and they're pretty tight-lipped about that maybe someday it'll it'll leak out you know but you're talking about the end of last year when they had the isaiah thomas situation and and he for the first time that tim corbin's been here that i remember i'm not saying he's gotten along with everybody because he hadn't. Uh, I'm sure there's instances where guys have been, you know, it's mutually agreed to leave or he said they need to leave. But when you have a player publicly say that the head coach manipulates the draft, uh, which Isaiah Thomas said that about Tim Corbin. And look, Isaiah Thomas is obviously, 
I, I don't really want to get deep in the woods about it. He obviously had some issues that he was getting help with, um, and I think he made that public. Um, but I don't want to speculate as far as his mental pro- – where he was in his mental uh, life at the time and where he's been because I, I saw he's in the portal. I guess he officially has been in school. Good for him. He stayed in school. I'm glad that Isaiah Thomas stayed in school. But when you have that happen and you say after you lose to Mississippi State – and, and NCAA finals, and you got a guy who publicly says after the draft that Tim Corbin manipulates the draft of players that he prefers, that doesn't bode well. And that sent a five-alarm, red-engine, red, blaring signal to me that, you know, hmm, this doesn't seem right. And it also didn't seem right that when you had a freshman pitcher in Christian Little who was confrontational to Brownie in the dugout of the SEC tournament without all the cameras saw. And he was also apparently, I didn't realize this was a picture of he and Brownie having a heated discussion in Omaha. Um, that's unusual because they're usually pretty good about keeping stuff under the can. So that, you know, little on the team this year, Thomas, not, um, little doesn't dress for the South Carolina series for unspecified reasons. Um, you know, it's it just, and again, uh, it's just a feel, a player's feel, a former player's feel that I think they got along. You see him jumping over the rail after a big hit and the guy puts on, you know, gets a home run and they do the tunnel for him. I think they got along. I think there was camaraderie, but you just wonder if, if there was something underneath because it sure didn't seem like it compared to years the past because we've been so spoiled and the coach has been honest and said, we didn't have to, we didn't have to worry about anything. And he got that indication at Christmas break as they were heading to the, you know, they, he's very intuitive about that. So I don't know your thoughts. Um, again, I'm not privy to anything on the record, off the record. And if it was off the record, I wouldn't say it. But uh, I, I just think that instance where you had that for the first time, there could have been some underlying things of going on that maybe, you know, um, the way the kids are today, it, it's, it's, you know, you got to take chances on kids and different things. Carter, Young, I mean, excuse me. With with um, little, I mean, the kid was young coming in, and you wonder if if their approach going through in the future about letting a kid that young come to campus, it's a gamble, and maybe that was the only way Christian Little was going to come to Vanderbilt. He might have said, "I'm coming. I want to come as a senior. I'm going to skip my senior year, and I'm coming." And you know, with a talented arm like that, you wonder if they you know were stuck, and they said, "We're going to take a chance on him," but at what price did that happen? And um, you know, uh, what, what price did they pay to have him come pitch two years and now he's in the portal? So those are just two things that I think were kind of just some red engine lights going that, that, that caught my attention. Yeah, I mean, that's something you never see, the, the confrontation between player and, and coach when he's been here, at least not publicly. And that, that caught my eye, too. I think the other thing was, without naming names, you had a couple of guys um, – who who had, how do I put it, issues going on in Omaha who weren't back for this year. And, and you do wonder if somehow in the last couple of years they have lost their grip on, on chemistry and roster cohesiveness and, and maybe it bit them a little bit the last couple of years just based on the things we know. Well, in Twitterverse and Instagram and face the social media world that we're in right now, everything's so instant 
everything is so uh, in your face and people can contact them. You got people getting in their ear, meaning players saying you should be pitching more. You should be playing more. Uh, you got, you know, handlers now uh, that these players go to with these different organizations. I'm sure that want a piece of them when they turn pro um, you've got all that, but it's so instant now, Chris. It's so just compared to even 10 years ago, it was out there, but um, these guys have got phones and they can, they can see what people's opinion of them are. And if somebody's saying, well, this kid should be pitching more, uh, you know, this player should be playing more. Why isn't he playing? And it gets in their brain and their parents start talking and their family starts talking and, the, and it gets to be a, a spiraling situation. And that's just the world we live in now. And it doesn't make it any better, the fact that with the transfer rules. You know, Ron Polk, I told you this yesterday. Ron Polk, legendary coach at Mississippi State. When I played, he was there. Um, you know, he had a theory that he thought, and, he, and he's still involved in baseball. He's a special assistant at the university there, and he also travels and speaks a lot. But I really respect him. He's kind of the godfather of college baseball, in my opinion. He and Skip Bertman. And, and his theory was, you know, if a player – is disgruntled on their own condition. He should have to sit out a year if he wants to transfer. If their coach gets fired or he leaves and uh, or their scholarship is cut from, you know, 4%, 20%, then he should be able to go somewhere else and not sit out. But he said he's very adamant that the way it is now is just the Wild West. And my buddies and I are talking about it, watching that, you know, watching games last weekend and talking back and forth. The whole thing is the Wild West. The NIL is the Wild West. The transfer portal is the Wild West. The bats are the Wild West. Uh, could you say PEDs? I don't know. That's the Wild West. You could, you could have some of that going on. The rabidness of college baseball. And I think a lot of it is good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, that you watched that Oklahoma State game oh my in, goodness. in Arkansas. Yeah. It was like the Hatfields and McCoys. Those guys were in each other's throats, slamming the ball down, talking trash, you got the fur coats, you got the the helmets, the football helmets putting on. And I'm not saying I'm anti all that, but it's just different. And it, and it's just a different game right now. And uh, you got to adapt, I guess, or do it your own way and see what you if you hold hold your own the way you do it. But it's just it's craziness right now that these kids have the upper hand now. You don't play me, you don't pitch me. I'm leaving. Um, I don't care what it does to your to your rotation next year. If you're not, if I'm not getting the run, I'm going somewhere else. And you, you, I saw a picture. I've been talking too much. I'll just finish with this Southern miss. You got these special teams, Chris, I watch and every year there's one or two and I watch them, the press conferences and I watched the Southern miss and they talked about the cohesion and how they get along and how these guys could go somewhere else. And they've only thrown 15 innings. And if they'd been somewhere else, they could throw 40, 40 innings and their first, you know, couple round talent, but they accept their role. And that team's pretty unique. And I'm watching them in the super this weekend. It's going to be interesting, but you get those special teams and they don't come around all the time. And you just got to wonder, and I, you know, Tim Corbin and those guys want to get to that fact. They know what success is, but are they willing to adapt and take those chances on portal and organize something with the NIL with, with McGugan and getting it done because it's happening everywhere else. And, it, you, and you either going to join them, and try to beat them in joining them or do it your way and see if your way eventually is the, the paramount way to do it. 
Well, man, there's there's so much to unpack here, and I want to leave time for a question or two. But yeah, I mean, it, it's different. I mean, the portal uh, again, Vanderbilt was uh, th- there were schools that were ready to hit the ground running on that from day one. Vanderbilt was not. Um, Tennessee, their biggest rival, got maybe the best kid in the portal today in the shortstop from Kansas. Um, so there's that. I, I do think Go that. Figure. Yeah. Well, and. <laughs> I do think we're at a, I don't know the adjective to use here, but a different point in college baseball, right? I'll give you a, you talked about the pendulum swinging between the power between the players and the coaches. I don't know if you saw the thing about the coach at San Francisco being dismissed, but go Google that and look for a couple things and the reasons why. I do think there was an old school element of player abuse and things like that that I've never approved of that now it is harder to get away with with the portal. On the other hand, I see something I don't like in the fan experience. I think that baseball used to be a more genteel sport. I've seen the worst of college football fandom sort of started to bleed over into baseball with certain fan bases. I saw a guy hit a a double last week and round the bases with his middle finger towards the sky and, and – Yelling obscenities oh, at the he, outfield. I mean, I just, just see things just happening. Saying, <laughs> yeah, we're number one. They're number one. Yeah, Chris. I, I just, just and I'm not saying the way that everything used to be done was was right. Um, again, I, I think that there used to be an environment where it was too easy for coaches to abuse players and things like that. But I see this new day, and it's just vastly different from what you and I are used to watching college baseball the last twenty years or so. Yes, and and uh, as I mentioned in the broadcast after the Tennessee series, uh, the podcast, there is, uh, you know, um, 168 miles from here to the east, a program has developed to where um, you've got a coach who is the antithesis of one of the best coaches in the country, Tim Corbin. And for those of you who didn't hear me go through that, I'll just do the cliff notes. I mean, everything Tim really is about, Tony Vitello, maybe by design, is not. And um, and not maybe by design. I think it's probably he does it recruiting. Do you want don't you why do you want to go to Vanderbilt? You why do you want to work that hard? You want to come up here and play right. ball. We have fun. We have fun. You know, we we do it this way. You know, we 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 treat our players, it's not not military, it's it's this and you know, just the demeanor and everything at UT is every single pitch. If it's a ball, it's 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 heated and and every call it's contested and and certain things are thrown out the window as far as you know the kind of the way baseball is played and and uh, you know it's it's just and and I think you're going to see a situation where uh, Vanderbilt recruits nationally pretty much and UT is, can do that too. But I've had stories where UT is getting kids, Chris, that. They're over signing or they're over committing, and maybe some of these kids aren't getting money, and they got forty kids out there trying out for twenty spots, and they get cut in the fall. And um, you know, a school like UT can do that, um, and it, it, it's just going to be interesting to see how this plays out down the down the line when all these twenty three and twenty four year olds flush out of the programs of these schools. Rosters have to get back down to 2035 and see 
how the recruiting parity goes then um, and see what kind of success because, you know, as I mentioned in that one month and a half ago, Tim Corbin used to have a wall around this state from Knoxville to the Memphis city limits. Um, doesn't really get a whole lot of kids except Colwick out of Memphis, but Mississippi State and Ole Miss get those kids mainly in Arkansas. But he had his free reign, and that's not the case anymore. And so how this program adjusts in recruiting, uh, because I'll tell you, I don't think Tim's the type of guy um, is, who's going to change. He'll change. I can see him changing, and you just got to dig a little deeper if he's going to go in the portal and get some kids and really, really – dial in on how they adjust and how they re- are part of a team because I don't think he's going to give that up. I think he likes the development of the team too much, but if he can zero in and just really find out what the makeup of these kids are, because here in today's world is this, and I think I told you the other day, if you got a junior or senior, if you're trying to go get, um, I'm going to make this up. If you're going to get the um, best pitcher from Tulane to come to Vanderbilt or Princeton or wherever, who's a hoss and he's going to get drafted and he's their number one and you can pencil that guy in as your number three and he's a stud, that kid's going to want to play. You're signing him to play. And Tim does not do that staff that your positions are rented. You know, you get them, you earn them. So how do you get a kid in today's world and say, you know, Hey, stud pitcher, we're going to bring you in, but you're going to, we're going to, make you earn it and all that. I mean, you know, there's the, there, therein lies where they're going to be and, and how much is important to team and developing unity on the team and fellowship and getting along and those things. That's where it's going to be a, a paramount task. And I'm sure that's something they're figuring out. You're just going to have to dig a little deeper and find out. And you can't miss, can't bring a cancer on the team and do that, not the way that they've done it, um, the way they do it and the, the way they structure their program. I knew this was going to happen. We're almost at the end of our hour, and there were things that, that we didn't get to, including the mailbag, although I am going to get to one question because I think it's the biggest one hanging in the air as we do this and maybe save some of the others. Well, probably not maybe until next well, I can week. Do, we, can, we can do 10 more minutes. So yeah, okay. Well, then I'm, I'm good. But there's, there's a couple more notes I've got or maybe <laughs> one more note. The schedule, and I always say this, you play a brutal schedule, it makes you look probably worse than you are. I did the math on this. I think they had played 28 or 29 games that were still playing on Monday night against teams still playing on Monday night. I I don't know what the, the portion of their schedule was against teams that were in the final 32, but it was probably close to half of their games, which is unbelievable. I mean, you look at who they played in the league and didn't play. They didn't play Mississippi State, which wound up having the worst record in the league. Uh, they did play AM, They did play Arkansas. They did play LSU, which Tennessee did not play. I mean, it wasn't going to matter. Tennessee was going to win anyway. But schedule does matter. Um, I think that's worth pointing out. You know, they played played a game against Michigan in the midweek, which was runner-up in the Louisville Regional. Um they played Louisville in the midweek, which won the Louisville Regional. I, I could go on, but the schedule strength, I think, was number one in the RPI, at least coming into or ending last week. And I'm sure you can look other computer rankings. They were probably right up there, too. But I think that's worth a footnote. 
All right, I'm, I'm going to end with a couple of questions. Our mailbag is sponsored by Sutherland & Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one's been hurt in an accident, give Taylor or Russell a call. That number is 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Uh, the, the big question, and we have touched on it some, your thoughts on the Christian Little transfer. This is from Matt 23 Yeah, I mean, if, if I were to... Um there have been thoughts about Christian Little being young ever since the day he came on. So we've talked about that. And this year, I think he still was the youngest player on the team, um, even though he was technically a sophomore. If I'm a scout, Chris, and I'm looking at Christian Little, and I, I give these adjectives or statements about him, live fastball, mid-90s, can reach upper levels, 90s, live arm, looks great in a uniform. Fills the uniform out. Got the get get off the bus look. I mean, he's he, he when you see that guy, he's the first one you pick if you had a blind draft. As far as good looking kid, athletic, fills the uniform out. Um, immature probably. Uh, you know, um, had some confrontations with staff. Doesn't pitch well from the stretch. Never has since he's been at Vanderbilt. Better from the wind up, high leg kick. Live arm, lots of potential, probably needs to be coddled. That's my description of him. Now, taking all that out, as far as what the youth part I said about Christian Little, Christian was given the ball twice uh, in, in, to win a national championship and to win a regional championship just past week. And he didn't perform that well. I mean, he didn't, you know, he, he pitched, granted, he pitched two days before, but he was given opportunities. So it probably was just not a good fit in the long run. It, it, was, it took a chance on a kid who was young. I think he has tons of potential. I think it'll be good for him to go somewhere else. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hate to see him go because I think he had a lot of potential, probably one of the best potential arms on the staff. I don't think he was the best pitcher. I think UT probably had six or seven guys pitch better than him this year, maybe eight. But he didn't rise to the occasion. Um, I'm sorry to see him go. I hate to see kids leave the program. Uh, I really do. And I told you. What did I tell you a month ago? Well, look, just for full disclosure, you have been in our private text for two months saying I would not be surprised if, if he hit the portal. I don't know that you had any specific information, no, but you just no. had a gut feeling about that all along. And so I know when that happened on – Wednesday or whenever it was, or Thursday, you were probably the least surprised person uh, in this podcast audience. Yeah, and, and um, you know, what that does in this day and age, he can leave and not sit out. Uh, you know, he can strike out some guys. He walks a ton of guys, gave up some bombs. Um, you know, there are a lot of guys who do that in this, that are out there in the college world. But, you know, you look at what, you know, he had those opportunities. It's, I, I don't think, even though he wasn't an SEC starter, he was given the ball twice. You know, Coach Corbin says, here's the ball, go get me a title. Here's the ball, go get me a regional win. Uh, and, you know, in, the, in Omaha last year, I think he walked four and gave up four Ernie's in two innings in, in the game for the Natty. So, um, once again, I hate to see him go. Um, I hate when anybody leaves the program. I was not surprised. He just had the look on it, and it just smelt like he was going to leave, if that makes sense. I just had a feeling all along 
that I thought it would be a parting of the ways at the end of the season, and it happened. I wish him well, and I, and I know the coaching staff probably does too, but um, uh, you know he'll probably go. Can he transfer? He, there's a deadline of transferring within the conference, right? Isn't there? A- yeah, I don't know all the specifics on that. I mean, okay. every program in the country is going to want Christian Little, and I, I think yeah, that. Yeah. I, I don't know where you place the blame here. I mean, I think that one was probably very complicated, and I probably don't know 10% of it. But th- that's a fail for the program. Uh, however you slice it, either maybe a misevaluation of what they were dealing with or a failure to develop. Now, I'll tell you one thing that was interesting. I was having a conversation with somebody who's who's very dialed into that program the opening weekend, and Little comes in a spot, I think, against Oklahoma State. And, and I think if – and I should have pulled the box. I did. And I think he pitched pretty well for an inning. And the conversation at the time was, okay, do, do they lock in their gains and try to build confidence or do they throw him out another inning and see what he can do? And I thought, man, that's a really interesting conversation to be having about a kid who, if he'd gone in the draft – two years ago would have been a top five, top 10 pick like sophomore year. You don't expect to be having that conversation to me. That's a, you roll him out there for the second inning, but because you need him and he's maybe your most talented arm on the staff, the fact that it came up and Oh, by the way, I think they ended up going to somebody else. That was a little bit of an omen for where that season was headed. Yeah, I agree. And, and, uh, I remember that well, um, it's just a, he'll, he'll surface, um, I would think, at, at a program. Um, but, you know, uh, whoever takes him is going to only have him for a year, and there's enough programs out there that will, that will take him for a year because um, I think he's he'll, he'll get drafted really I, I think a year. team would be crazy not to take him, probably. Yeah, um, yeah. so, but um, anyway, let's. I enjoy these questions, and I appreciate all the people in the mailbag who do that. I know there was a lot. I saw them, so let's keep going. Uh, my boy's got to be picked up for golf, but that's been delayed a little bit, so we can take a few more. We Let's keep going. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you one from Chris and Franklin uh, on a similar note. Uh, what was your take on the Carter Young transfer? Because that's one that I had really hoped that that they could sort of – Make right. I don't know what the issue was. I don't know if there was friction between he and the staff. I, I know that you saw him get benched, which is a really rare thing. You just don't see Tim Corbett bench his starting shortstop, especially a kid with the talent he's had. Um, now, now the flip side, there's some people that don't know that his swing can be fixed. That is doesn't know that his bat stays in the zone long enough. That the fielding to me was just a complete mystery because his issues were not athletic. I didn't think. I thought in terms no. of getting the balls, in terms of making throws, he had all the tools there. I mean, to me, even if the bat's mediocre, you want him on the field when when he's playing at his peak just because shortstop defense is so valuable. And when it was going well for him, he was so phenomenal at it. But just seeing him just – like he did it again in the, the San Diego game, I think, where he just dropped – a double play ball. They, they could have turned two in a big spot. It just falls out of his glove. That kind of thing happened to him a lot of times over the last few weeks. I've got no explanation for that. That was one of the weirdest things. And again, I, I do think that you have, I would say it's a turning point, whether it's an exclamation, excuse me, whether it's an explanation, I don't know, but certainly he was a much different player from the time his shoulder popped out 
against North Alabama. And I think you and I were sitting in the stands together. I think I'd come down from the press box and was watching it with you. And we're both like, oh, no. Because when you see that kind of injury, that's one that leaves a mark. Now, to Carter Young's credit, he played through it in the postseason. It was not his best time. I, I don't know if the playing through it maybe affected his performance and and your performance, even when you've got an explanation for it, sometimes affects your confidence. Maybe he never got that back. Maybe that's on the staff for not just resting him. I I don't know. I don't know where the blame is in this, but that's one that I always really liked that kid. And and I hope for him, it ends up very well. And maybe the best thing for Carter Gung is to transfer somewhere else, get the shortstop job not have it come with the white-hot spotlight that is shortstop at Vanderbilt with some of the baggage he's carrying. I mean, my, my thing, it's the same thing I said with coaches. When I'm evaluating somebody, I look at the good you've done, and I look at the bad, and I know a lot of people look at that and say, well, he, he didn't hit. His fielding was inconsistent at the end. I look at it, the body of his career, and I say, there's a guy that when it was all rolling was a guy that was starting to get first-round mention. He's an elite glove. The, the, the bat, when you get 16 home runs out of a shortstop who feels like that, that's an elite-level player. That is still in his DNA somewhere. Whether he gets that back to the surface in the next stop, I don't know. But that's one that, that I never would have guessed, you know, 13 months ago was going to end the way that it has at Vanderbilt. No, I, I wouldn't have guessed it 13 months ago. I probably I had some inkling maybe in the last four or five weeks. Um, don't forget, he can get drafted. That too. And, 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 some, and, and so, somebody you know, he, may take a chance on him just right. based on upside because that's what the draft is about. Right. And, and so he could go somewhere else and fall back. I, I, um, let me say this. Carter Young, my kids met him after a game and I wasn't standing there. I was standing off of a little bit on the distance. I kind of let them interact and he was standing there with his family. What, what great, what a, he's a good kid, a great kid. I mean, he, he, what he told my boys and he interacted with them and his parents did. And, and they, you know, I met his parents in Omaha, great people. Yeah. I mean, they, and, and let me interject too. I've, I've noticed the same when I've been around him, I've met his parents briefly. I think they're a really good family. Um, I hope, that he has all the success in the world wherever he lands, whether it's another school of the pros. Because he's, he's a kid that, that you don't know. I, I didn't really know them intimately or their family, but he just seemed like a kid. And, and I hope the same for Christian Little. I hope that it works out really well for both those guys. Maybe a change of scenery is what they both need, but I hope it works out very well for both those guys. Yeah, and, and he, uh, I just don't know, to be short here, I, I just don't know if he ever got well. I mean, he didn't play in the fall coming off the surgery. I think he had the, I think maybe the Mets or the Yankees surgeon performed his surgery after Omaha. Couldn't play in the summer, didn't play in the fall. Um, I just don't know if, if he's still hurt, Chris. Maybe so, if it, or it's still something lingering that needs to get cleaned up. Don't know that. Um, maybe we'll find out. Not that it really matters, but um, I just don't think he was the same. And, and um, reading between the lines. I think it just also became mental. Uh, you know, he goes out West and he's the NCAA tournament. He's got all these friends in the stands and he plays, doesn't play after the first game. Hardly. I'm not saying that was a deciding factor, but that had to be a blow mentally to him uh, that, you know, they said they had 50 people in the stands coming from, you know, where he's from in Oregon or, or Washington to, to watch. And, 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 you know, sometimes when that all happens and it just kind of mushrooms, you just kind of say, you know, do I need a fresh start? 
And so we'll see how that progresses. Um, not a real shocker on those. The, the, the one I'd say that if it's if if the, what's true on the social media, you had Carter Young, you had Hanson, and you had Donye. Um, Donye is a little more surprising to me because I thought he had a future that he could go out there um, and and maybe develop into a closer next year. Um, but you know, Hanson's older, was on the Mormon mission. Older kid um, thought he had a decent summer, I think, this past year, and then didn't get the innings this year as he'd liked. Although he came in through hard, I'm my son said he threw a hundred on the gun during the game. I wasn't watching um, when he came in in the regional. I did I didn't see that, but he was throwing upper nineties. So I'm sure he'll land somewhere too. But I would say Donye, that was surprising to me. I don't know about you, but um i kind of thought that kid would have stuck around and again we're just reading off twitter or twitter report that young hansen donya evans in the portal and then we had the situation with isaiah thomas formally putting himself in the portal even though he didn't play this year and you had a couple guys put themselves in the portal i think he even played a game this year who were they um Migliaccio, i think and Oh, good grief. There were, there were a couple of pitchers. Clarksville. Yeah. Clarksville pitcher. Yeah. So, um, and there, as I, as I said, as I predicted, I thought there would be potentially 25, 30% turnover, um, on this roster could be, um, and we'll just have to see how that goes. Okay. Here's a question that's off this track a little bit, but I like it. Godors 94 asks, I think Devin Futrell pitches a little bit like Tom Glavin, but it's been a long time since I saw Glavin pitch. Do you see this? That had never occurred to me until now, but I don't think that's a bad comp at all. They're both left-handed. They both have that fastball that's probably upper 80s. That's not their money pitch. It's off-speed stuff. In Glavin's case, it was the breaking ball and being able to pound that outside corner or, in a lot of cases, uh, six inches off the outside corner and get that called strikes. Uh, You know, one thing we called in our regional preview is I said, watch out for Futrell because I thought that he might match up well with Oregon State, that there was enough in his past that he had bottled, that he could bottle up, that they could find it again. You need a guy who can throw strikes and gets that lineup. He did it. Um, I, I like that comp. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. A great, great call by the, um, by the person who sent that in. I've said that all along. I've told that to friends. I love Tom Glavin was one of my favorite pitchers. Um, love pitching like him. Um, he was a little bit older than me, so I kind of tried to model my game after him. So I loved it. Um, but that is, yeah, picking the plate and not throwing any balls really over the plate, trying to give the umpire to get further and further and further all the strike on the outside corner. But Futrell's changeup is going to be his money pitch. I think he he's going to have to develop his curveball, breaking ball a little better uh, in this league to have a third pitch, and I'd love to see that. Maybe he can step up the fastball a little bit more, but uh, I think his movement's good. Great changeup, uh, pro-level changeup, and develop the breaking ball and goodness gracious, he goes out there and gets all American along with Holden first team, all American. So you got two first team, all American pitchers coming back next year. Um, we hope, and I don't think, I think both those guys, it's just kind of right now it's the, um, waiting game, but, uh, I, I think those guys are coming back and you can pencil those two guys in right now. Yeah. I think Futrell is one of those kids that if the fastball ever gets up to 93, 94, Given how refined he is, you figure he's going to develop another pitch. That, that's a kid that, that that maybe ends up being a late first round or two years from now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he's got a great demeanor. He wanted to be a Vandy boy since he was in eighth grade. 
Um, he, um, you know, coming from that high school that Enrique came from. So, you know, they've, they've got some, a funnel there, some future guys, hopefully too. But yeah, I see, um, I saw some on your board asking, I don't, I don't, I, the, the gnashing of teeth and worrying about some other guys. I think there might be another day of waiting or whatever, but I think you've seen the most, the, the most of what you're going to see is flushing out. I think your core guys are coming back unless I just something crazy happened, grades or what have you. But, um, it's never a fun time uh, to deal with all this, but it, it, every team's going to go through it. Um, kids want to play ball. They want to play. UT will go through it. You'll see some roster turnover UT. You know, they're going to try to funnel in guys who are better than what they have. And, and it's just it's the ugliness of this game right now. Because believe me, me, as much as there's guys going out the door, these coaches are going to get the picture that they're going to say, you know what, two can play this game. And we're going to make it mighty uncomfortable for some of these kids to come back. Uh, the problem is, and I think Ari Garson said this in her in her article the other day, is that Vanderbilt with his and she made a great point. And kudos to her. I, again, I want to say this. I think her baseball coverage has been great this year. Um, but she made a point that you know, with the degree of Vanderbilt degree, some of these kids, it's hard for them. You know, you you go from state school to state school to directional school, whatever degrees don't mean as much to those kids, but trying to run somebody off quote unquote at Vanderbilt's a little difficult, difficult because of what you stand for and what Tim stands for and the degree and the importance that they put on that is, is monumental. So, um, if you, if you hadn't had a chance on Twitter to see her, she kind of did a breakdown on the, the portal and all that. And I thought it was very interesting. She had some good points. Yeah. She, she's done a really good job with a lot of the, of our stuff this year. All right, Chip, uh, we're up against, I don't know, I guess a time limit for you of sorts, um, or, or about to be, and heck, we've, we've gone on for, what, an hour and 20 minutes anyway, uh, or close to it. Any parting thoughts, things we didn't get to, loose ends here as we end the show? No, Chris, uh, you know, we can maybe do another show um, after the draft or something when that all comes out, and of course, we won't know about some of the kids until later on. Don't hold your breath on and, uh, on Drew Jones, by the way. No, uh, no I think that's a safe trick. call. But I'd love to see if it happen. But um, no, it's just um, th- this this season I know was uh, one where uh, the fans um, were, you know, back and forth in the yo-yo. And believe me, I was too. And it was, you know, big fans of Vanderbilt just like what's the deal what's the matter what you know what's and that's going to happen in baseball you're going to have some inconsistencies especially with the changing of the game and i have enough confidence in in this coaching staff that they will they will get it done uh it might uh you know this team is this school kind of went a little tortoise pace instead of some of these the jackrabbit pace as far as the NIL hopefully they'll get around to that in a smart way that'll attract some kids but i think for anyone waiting for the Wild West to come to Vanderbilt, I don't think it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, Jay Billis at Villanova getting out in basketball, I'm not saying anything about Tim doing the same. But if the game changes too much, I worry that, you know, because he's a traditionalist. He came from, um, you know, Jack Leggett program where they did things a certain way. And you wonder if some of these coaches are scratching their heads going, do I really want to deal with that? I'm not trying to worry anybody. Don't have any inside information. But there is some times when you – you have a guy who's such a traditionalist in the way he does things. You wonder if, if you know, what he's going to do. And only Tim knows that and his staff. But, you know, I think there has to be a little bit of reckoning of getting the roster management 
solidified to where this whole, you know, 45 people, 50 people on the roster, whatever it is, and over signing and doing all that. We got to get some stability back in the game and get these 23 and 24 year olds out. Sorry, that sounds a little crass, but, you know, the COVID year probably, um, although on paper it sounded okay, um, it looks like it was, a, it, it hurt more than it helped. It hurt, helped the players, but I think it hurt the roster management. Once that get calmed down a little no bit, doubt. Yeah. we can get the portal situation and see what they can do and maybe get some three, four solid guys in here to replace um, maybe a starting pitcher and a corner guy, um, um, maybe a third and first and a, a, a two or three pitchers would be nice. That would be my preference. And um, go back out there. But I think Vanderbilt baseball, it's just a different year. We're not used to it, but, hey, it's going to happen. Um, we still got the man in charge. We got good kids over there, and I'm proud of them, of the way they you know, acted out there in Oregon their demeanor and uh, I, I think it's still it's it's proud to be a Vanderbilt Commodore and I don't see that changing anytime soon I don't know what this is going to look like but I feel like there's so much consternation and hand-wringing and it's made coaches jobs so difficult the combination of NIL and the portal it's kind of like midterm elections right you don't know what it looks like but the party in power's already always done something that makes somebody unhappy, and you sort of have a counterbalance in the next election at the midterm. And I feel like college sports, not just baseball, I feel like they're headed to sort of a midterm election that's a correction in that regard. And I don't know what it looks like, but I just feel like there's been too much hand-wringing and dissatisfaction that, that there's not some correction on the horizon maybe i don't know if it's this year it, it's probably more like a couple of years out and then like you said throw the roster thing in there with covid too that that is just causing so many headaches along with the shrinking of the minor leagues i just feel like you could have stood back a year or two ago pre-covid you could have never anticipated everything that was coming and and i feel like everybody's heads are still spinning to the point where that they, they are still dizzy, and when you're dizzy, you don't think right. But I feel like at some point the the, the dizziness is going to stop, and, and there will be some fix for some of this. I don't think it'll ever go back like the way it was before. But I'm I'm very interested to see what it looks looks like when when some of the chaos ends, when the minds get together, and when there's a solution for some of this. Because I, I do think there is a a Wild West element to it. That, that's the phrase you used over and over, and I don't disagree, that I think at some point there, there is a counter, counterbalance to that. Right. I mean, I think the major issues, and I'll close with this, and, and um, you know, bats, NIL, bats, NIL, portal, um, are three that come out, roster management, number on the roster. I think that's a huge thing, staring down the barrel. Scholarship, scholarship issues and getting off the uh, 11.7 number or whatever it is. I always get confused. I want to say 11.7 or 13.8. I, I don't know what it is, but increasing those limits. Um, I think those are the five things that are staring college baseball in the face. And I would say the third assistant, uh, yeah. six. And and those are the things that are going to be staring them down in the face of how they do it. It's a great game. A lot of people are watching it more than they ever have great games espn had some good games they were talking about how much their audience was up for the super for the regionals and we'll i'm sure this weekend as we're sitting here talking we got games going on now 
and there'll be an exciting weekend, hopefully. But the game's growing, but they've got to manage it right. They're going to make some tough decisions about it to keep it in line before it just gets nuts. And, and, um, and whereas there's not management, and a lot of that has to do with the NCAA, too, and how they handle it. So those are my you know, thoughts, and um, good year. Thanks to everybody listening to this podcast. I don't know if you enjoyed them, and all the people who wrote in the mailbag, but we can revisit these, some more stuff. You know, We'll be coming on here in a couple weeks, I guess, and I'll be happy to do that and talk about where we are after the draft and, and um, the signing class and see how they do. Yeah, I would love to, if you're up for it, to do another podcast next week just on what's left of the roster. And then I think we, yeah, we can have that. a whole other one on the draft. I mean, there's there's yeah. plenty of material here. I'll close with this. I don't have any information, but I would bet you money based on history. that They, they will be doing something with the equipment in the offseason. It's just too hard to pitch anymore, whether it's the bats. It's been speculated that, that the balls are an issue. I, I mean, I, I don't know what it is, but the ball is leaving the yard and offense has shifted – to such a dominant position in the college game that that I think you will see them. Now I hope they don't overcorrect and go to 2014 levels. Um, you know where where Mark McGuire couldn't hit the ball out of Omaha, but I, I think there's. I, I will bet you just based on the offensive numbers and the crazy stuff that you saw in regionals where no lead is ever safe, which, again, that would be – if you want to defend the Schultz thing, uh, that's one thing I meant to bring up is just look at the runs everywhere. And you don't totally blame Tim Corbin for taking the bird in the hand there, but I would bet you, again, no knowledge, but just based on what happened a few years ago, that you see some pretty major shift in the other direction. I would think so, and I hope they just get it right. I hope the powers that be are smart enough to – to get it right um and it remains to be seen but it's a great game uh you know i think they're doing all they can that people love offense so that's that's it's going to come into it like you know people love hitting seeing balls go over the fence there's no clock you know i even saw the other day on twitter there was a graphic where they showed i think the blue J- who was it played a game the yankees and somebody and it was an hour and 58 minutes and then they compared it to another game the same night with 23 minutes yeah and, you know, if, if there's anybody, you can tell Tim Tim's been on the rules committee for several different occasions. And, you know, the whole wristband thing, which we were the only team in the country, I think, who did that. And trying to get the game a faster pace. They don't throw the ball around the infield. They throw it to first and they get it back to the pitcher. You know, there's something to be warranted because there's nothing worse to go into a baseball game that's three hours and 40 minutes of just nothing. And so that's the, what the rules makers have to decide is, you know, how, you know, what do we do about this? But some people will argue, well, offense is good, Chris. You know, we like seeing balls going out of the park. And um, so, yeah, I mean, different things in the game. They're experimenting in the AAA. Aren't they going to make the base bigger at second base so they yeah. can get more stolen bases? And so they're trying to tinker with it. And um, But it's a great game. College game's a great game. I love seeing all the excitement that's going on. And, and uh, there'll be some good baseball this weekend. Well, I hope the wristbands go universal because I thought that the games they played in this year sped along at a nice pace. You yeah. Know, just so many games drag out. You're 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 three two, and it's the eighth, and you've been there three and a half hours. That was not the case for them. I don't know how many games they finished in sub three hours, but I felt like the way that works should be a model for baseball at a lot of levels. Yeah, and we'll see if anybody. I know he said he's had a lot of inquiries about that from people all over the country. How does it work? What's it do? How much does it cost? Those things. Uh, and I'm sure it'll it'll spread, and you'll see some more teams doing that. All right. I'm going to let you go. If you want to tell folks about Frederick and Clark on the way out, be my guest. 
Yeah, sure. I'll just real quick here. Uh, Frederick and Clark Realty is our real estate company here in Nashville that I'm part of, along with our insurance agency. And we have been around since 1960, uh, serving Nashville, Middle Tennesseans for their real estate needs. Uh, we have two offices, one in Brentwood and one in Nashville, and one in Brentwood's in Maryland Farms area. And we're over here in Green Hills. Uh, but we service the entire Middle Tennessee region. Market is still pretty hot. Some prices have gone down. Specifically, I know a couple in my neighborhood have reduced uh, lately, and that's caused by the interest rates rising and get a little more inventory bumping up there, and some people have some more choices. It's still a seller's market, so to speak, but we are seeing some market flexibility on prices. So what does that mean to you if you're selling or buying your house? You need a professional to dive in with you, hold your hand as far as on the sell side, how to price your house, how to market it, how to get the best price and work with multiple offers because those are still going on. If you're a buyer, you need to make sure that you can compete and get that house that you want that everyone else in that's looking at it at the open house desires as well. That's where we come into play. Give me a call, 615-327-4800. Chip Frederick, again, is my name. And I can sit down with you, put you with a realtor in our bullpen that I call it that can work with you in your specific area, your price point. We've got 180 of them, and this is what they do. They're not part-time selling their house to their Aunt Susie or their Uncle Joe. This is what they do for a living, and that's what we uh, put our flag in the ground for as far as being professional and full-time. We've been around. We're Vanderbilt people. I'll close that by saying that. that uh, former Vanderbilt athlete, myself, my father, basketball player, played in the first gym, first game in Memorial Gym, and my brother, Steve, who runs the company as the broker. He's also a Vanderbilt graduate. So if you're a Vanderbilt person, you want to do real estate here in Nashville, give us a call, give us a try, and you can check us out on the web at frederickandclark.com. And I'm losing my voice. I've got a sinus infection, and I think I'm about done, Chris. Yeah, I, th- I think we both hit our pitch count. Uh, I did the last podcast. You did this one. So, uh, Chip, right. thanks for joining me. We'll do one of these again really soon uh, and perhaps next week. And you sound great, by the way. You sound I'm, I'm, I'm you getting sound, there. You're, you're getting there. You're I have – um, I'm five weeks and a day out of heart surgery. Six weeks out is supposed to be when your heart is 80% healed. I walked five and a half miles on Monday. Not all at go. once. Uh, some of that is – you know, just putting around from the, you know, the, from the bedroom to the kitchen and all that. But I'm, I'm getting there, nowhere near where I need to be. But but there's been a lot of progress. I can hear it in your voice. You look, you sound good. We'll talk well, soon, buddy. I'll give you a point of reference. When I got back from the hospital, I could not walk more than a quarter of a mile yeah. in in a day, and that's been that's been about four weeks. And so that's that's where I've gone from from here to there. So. Um, Well, it sounds good. Good to hear that. Thanks for joining us. And again, we'll, we'll catch you soon. Okay, man. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We thank our presenting sponsor, Jody Jones DDS. We thank our other sponsors, Sutherland and Belk and MyPerfectFranchise.net. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, and that's how we make this work, please email me at chrislee70 at gmail.com. We also ask that you subscribe to our website, vandysports.com. That is $99 a year. You get things there that you don't get here. And of course, please rate, review, and subscribe where you see our podcast. That helps us get noticed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at vandysports.com. Follow me at chrislee70. 
And finally, subscribe to our Vandy Sports YouTube channel as well. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast, which is part of the 440 Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. We'll catch you with another episode coming very soon.